Thank you so very much, Grace Team. Appreciate so much that comes to time together. Praise the Lord and worship in his name. Uh, last Sunday, we began to ask one of the most critical questions of history. And that question is, who killed Jesus? I think the best answer that I've ever seen is this answer here. We might not have cried out, let him be crucified. We might not have been among the guards who beat him, mocked him, and scourged him. We might not have drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet on that day. We might not have walked by him and blasphemed him as he hung on the cross. But it was our sin that hung Christ on the cross that day. And all of us know that is the reality. As we look at Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, it's very interesting that the question is not who, but the real question in that passage is why. Why did people kill Jesus? People's actions always spring from motives, and so the question is, what are the underlying motives? When we look at those involved in killing Jesus in Mark 15, what we see is their motives, but we actually see more. Mark 15 is not a history lesson because people still reject Jesus today, don't they? And for the very same and so this passage is as up-to-date as the person you will minister to or witness to this very next week. And what we learned in Mark 15 in the opening verses at Jesus' trial before Pilate is this very important lesson. Those who kill Jesus illustrate four motives for rejecting him today. This will very much help us. It will help us understand the people that we witness to why they reject Jesus. And if you are here today and you would say, I'm not a believer, I'm not convinced, it might even help you understand yourself why you may reject Jesus. Let's just take a moment, shall we, and pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, which is ever true, ever relevant, ever speaks to our situation, helps us understand who we are and the people around us, why we do need Jesus so much. So guide us now into your word, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now last week we saw the first two motives in this passage, the Sanhedrin, Jesus makes me angry. Then Pilate, Jesus makes me lose something. And now today the crowd, Jesus makes me disappointed. Would you turn with me to Mark 15? page 1013 in your chair Bible, and let's pick up again at verse 6 as we now focus on the reaction of the crowd. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, and he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them, Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, Crucify him! This is a famous 19th century painting of the crowd at Pilate's Hall. At Passover, we learn from this passage, it was customary for the governor to release a prisoner as a goodwill gesture to the Jews. It was called the Passover Amnesty. And this helps us understand on Good Friday the presence of the crowd and their reaction. It was customary to confront the Roman governor with as large a crowd as possible. So this explains why a large mob came to the trial of Jesus. They were not there for Jesus. In fact, in verse 6, because Barabbas is introduced first before the request, it is very clear that they were there for Barabbas. Now this helps me understand the problem that I never understood. I could never understand. Why was it that on Palm Sunday, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and five days later, they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. I always thought, crowds are fickle. Crowds are easily stirred up. But the true answer, it was a different crowd, wasn't it? It was a different crowd. You see, Jesus was from Galilee on Palm Sunday when he came into Jerusalem. The Galileans were hailing him. But this crowd was from Judea. There were very few of Jesus' supporters in that crowd. Now that explains the choice of the crowd then for Barabbas. They were his supporters to begin with. They saw Jesus as a threat to the release of their man. Can you imagine how the religious leaders saw this? It played right into their hands. It was very easy to stir up the crowd to do away with Jesus and shout for Barabbas. Now this becomes even more tragic when we understand Barabbas' last name. Barabbas, or Barabbas' name, Barabbas is actually a last name, it is a surname. And so we ask this question, who was Barabbas? Well, the last name Barabbas means son of the father, or son of the master, son of the teacher. It is interesting that ancient Syriac and Armenian versions of the New Testament in Matthew 27, verses 16 and 17, call him Jesus Barabbas. I checked the modern editions of the Greek New Testament that I have in my <coughs> And in brackets, before Barabbas in Matthew 7, 27, 16 and 17, is Jesus. And there are very good reasons for believing 
that his first name was Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus Barabbas was chosen over Jesus Bar Jesus Barabbas, son of a father, was chosen over Jesus Bar Joseph, son of the father. And if we ask why, I think all of us know. Barabbas was the kind of Messiah they really wanted. He was a political activist. He was a man of action. He was a Jewish patriot who was willing to take up arms for freedom. But what was Jesus? He seemed so passive. He had no political ambitions. He was unwilling to revolt. You saw at Pilate's judgment seat Jesus wouldn't even defend himself. And the crowd rejected Jesus because he was not leading to the immediate future they envisioned. I want you to think about this this morning. When their Messiah came, he was nothing but a great big disappointment. Let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about that in our own lives. When we become Christ followers, we often have very rosy expectations for the future. Do we not? Yes, we do. We often think this way. Now that I'm following Christ and I'm living for Him, things are going to go a certain way. We come to church and we look at people around us and things seem to be going their way in their lives. And now we sort of assume this is going to happen in my life as well. Now we know that trials are going to come, but we sort of say to ourselves, nothing major, nothing catastrophic, nothing that is going to be too bad. And then some devastating thing comes and punches us right in the mouth. And we think, this shouldn't happen. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, Pastor John Calvin led the Reformation 500 years ago in Switzerland, had one child, a son. He died in infancy of infant mortality. And in his grief and despair, this is what he wrote to a friend of his. He said, the Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our infant son. But he himself is a father and knows best what is good for his children. That is a very, very mature response. That sounds like Job, doesn't it? 
the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Say it with me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But many people cannot respond that way, especially when it's your only child. And the illusion that we created of our life with Jesus is now shattered and we become disillusioned. Many, many people have given up on following Jesus because in their minds they have said to themselves, it wasn't supposed to go this way. I wasn't supposed to have this problem once I gave my life. Jesus. And it is the reason why the crowd accepted Barabbas but rejected Jesus. Jesus has disappointed me. Some of you may know one of the great Christian leaders of our country was Peter Marshall. He was a pastor, and then he became the chaplain of the United States Senate. He was a wonderful man of God and influenced many people. He wrote a book entitled The John Doe Disciple that was directed at young believers. Listen to what Peter Marshall said. Listen to this. Once and for all, we must put out of our minds that the purpose of life here is to enjoy ourselves to have a good time, to be happy, to make money, and to live in ease and comfort. That is not what life is about. You were put here for a purpose, and that purpose is not related to superficial pleasures. No one owes you a living, not your parents, not your government, not life itself. That's the chaplain of the U.S. Senate speaking. No one owes you a living, not your parents, not your government, not your life itself. He went on to say, you do not have a right to happiness. You have a right to nothing. I believe, he said, that God wants us to be happy, but it's not a matter of our right, but of his love and mercy. And when we come to that place in our Christian life where we can say, I have no rights to anything. It is all of his love and his mercy. We will never be disillusioned with the Lord Jesus Christ. Never. We will be able to sing about him. Since Jesus Christ has been given to me, what else can I ask beside? With his tender love and mercies, always being my God, I can say to him, it is all of your love and mercy. And what comes is for your best, because you know what is good. Anybody here today have a rose-colored view of what it means to follow Christ? 
You cannot come to his trial and crucifixion and not see that sometimes the pathway is very, very difficult. He has plans that are often different than ours. But he is worth following all the way, no matter what comes. There's a final motive in this passage. It's the motive of the soldiers. And the motive of the soldiers is Jesus makes me laugh. Jesus makes me laugh. This is another famous painting by a painter by the name of Karl Bloch. It's entitled The Mocking of Christ by a Soldier. And it's exactly what we read here in Mark 15. Would you look at verse 16 with me? And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, in the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a thorn of crowns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's look at the details here for just a moment. The palace here was Herod the Great's enormous palace that was used by Roman governors when they were in Jerusalem. When it describes here a battalion of soldiers, that's a tenth of the Roman legion, usually about 600 men. Let me ask you, have you ever been in a position where you've been mocked by several people? I remember one time when I was uh, in the dormitory and uh, some of my dorm mates sort of ganged up on me in jest, and they were winning the jesting battle, and I could not effectively jest back onto them. And I remember the longer it went on, the more helpless I felt as they were making fun of me. Now here's what I want to ask you. Can you imagine? I mean, 600 men making fun of you. None of us have ever been mocked in that way. It would be like being jeered at by a crowd. Now, what we need to understand here is that there's no love lost between soldiers and Jews. The Jews despised them, and they held the Jews in contempt. And so, whenever possible, the soldiers love to show their disdain for their Jewish enemies. And so, what do they do? They dress up Jesus after whipping him like a mock Greek prince. And look at the details a purple cloak, probably either a faded military cloak or a shabby purple rug that imitated royal robes. Notice the next thing, a crown of thorns, probably from the thorny palm spines, which mimicked a gilded wreath. All emperors would wear a gilded wreath when they would uh, show up in, in the regalia and be honored by the crowds. And so Jesus, born of crowns, was mimicking that wreath. 
Hail, king of the Jews, was told derision of a buffoonish figure, and striking his head with a reed would have been a wooden staff, like you see here, which was a caricature of a royal scepter. What do we see? Jesus became a figure of fun. A Jewish peasant made silly by ridiculous garb. I wonder if you've ever seen on the internet Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book God Delusion, ridiculing the Bible to uproarious laughter. Have you seen that? You know there are many in this group, and you know this group is growing. This group looks at it all and says, Joke. It's ridiculous. Over the years, I've collected statements by well-known people mocking either the Bible or Christ. You know, there are two ways you can mock Jesus. You can make fun of him personally or he can make fun of his word. And over the years, as I've seen uh, famous people do this, I, I just sort of made a little collection of the things that they have said. And let me read some of them for you. 2,000 years ago, most people thought Jesus was just some goofball that got himself nailed on the cross. Jeffrey Fire said that, a man who one time was a candidate for governor of the state of Michigan. Don't be oppressed by the fascism of Christianity. Rockstar Marilyn Manson said that his album, Antichrist Superstar, sold one million copies. Christianity is a religion for losers, and the Ten Commandments are obsolete. Almost every religion talks about a savior coming. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. Ted Turner, founder of CNN. <coughs> My belief is in working hard and treating people well. All that other stuff is nonsense. Chris Rock, comedian and actor. Organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people. Jesse Ventura, a former wrestler and governor of Minnesota. And then this one. Religion was invented when the first con man met the first fool. Mark Twain. Well, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. This group is growing. The Bible says Jesus is not a joke. In fact, he's the most serious person that ever lived. Listen to how serious he 
is. As I read for you, what will happen in his second coming, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Listen to this. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Does that sound like a joke to you? That sounds very, very serious to me. Do you know the main lesson in the training of Jesus for Barabbas? You know what that lesson is? The lesson in this trial before Pilate in which Barabbas gets set free and, and Jesus goes to the unimaginable death on the cross, the lesson is this. Jesus was willingly traded for Barabbas to be our substitute. That's the lesson Jesus was willingly, of his own accord, passively, willing to be traded for Barabbas, that he might be our substitute. Look at how it is revealed to us here in Mark chapter 15. Barabbas was the father's son. That's what his name meant. But Jesus' name means Savior. Barabbas was a fallen son of Adam. Jesus was a faithful son of God. Barabbas was a malefactor. Jesus went about doing good. Barabbas deserved to be punished. Jesus was innocent. Barabbas was allowed to go free. Jesus was nailed to the cross, prepared for Barabbas. May I say to us today, Jesus is not a goofball. He's not a fascist. He's not a loser. It's not nonsense. He's not a sham and a crutch. He's not a con man. He's not a fool. He's the Son of God. And he willingly died for you and for me. See, the truth is, Barabbas represents all of us. Jesus traded places with him because he has traded places.
you're here today, say, I'm, I'm not convinced, I'm not a believer. There's a reason behind it. Maybe Jesus makes you angry in some way, something in this book. You say, I, I can't accept. Maybe there's something that you will lose. You, you know if I come to Christ, something that is so important to me, and I have my hands grasped around, he's going to ask you to give that up. And I'm not sure it's worth it. Maybe some tragedy has happened in your life, and so you would say, I never expected it was going to go this way. If I follow Jesus, I had a certain plan for my Christian life. I didn't expect to get punched in the mouth like this. And I'm disillusioned. Maybe, maybe you bought into the world of those who think it's all joke, all nonsense. Something serious people don't believe. Whatever the reason, Jesus is Lord, and you are not. And someday you will need to come and bow the knee to Him. And as He came, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You will have to do that. You will have to repent and trust him. Let's take a moment, shall we, and let's bow our heads together. <clears throat> Our eyes closed and our heads bowed. I don't know what's standing in the way between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. But today he wants to remove that barrier. He wants you to believe that he is who he said he was, and he did what he claimed he would do. And the Bible says that God has proved that he is both Lord and Christ by raising him from the dead. He has ascended back to the right hand of the majesty on high. Someday he is coming in the clouds with great and eternal glory. And he will rule and reign with the rod of iron. And his kingdom will be established and the government will be upon his shoulders. And you can come with him in that triumph before the great white throne occurs and all the lost of all ages stand before him in ultimate judgment. The day of grace is open. 
message goes forward. The living Christ who loves you and extends his mercy to you invites you to come. Invites you to come. For Jesus, nothing touches our hearts like the fine hours of your earthly life. Nothing speaks so deeply to us as to what you went through for each and every one of us. And it's a moving experience to once again relive all that Jesus did to be a gracious and loving Savior. Lord, if Jesus be God and died for us, then no request of His is too difficult for us. Draw us to Him now today and bring those who need to know Him to the saving knowledge of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.